in the year 1962, it was a milestone for the creation of a corporate icon. The Dayton Dry Goods Company, which was founded in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1902, decided in that year that they were going to expand into a new direction. They're going to start a new chain of discount stores. And the staff debated over 200 names as to what they would call this new chain of department stores. They finally settled on a red and white bullseye logo and the name Target. No, Target. Target. According to their website, the reasoning was this, quote, as a marksman's goal is to hit the center bullseye, the new store would do much the same in terms of retail goods, services, commitment to community, price, value, and overall experience. Now, this is not an infomercial about Target. But I would, uh, it's obvious that Target's target is to sell merchandise, to reward its shareholders, holders, to serve its customers, and to give back to the community. Given that Target is the nation's second largest discount chain with over, with over $47 billion in sales last year, over 1,300 stores, the corporation appears to be, sorry, on Target. Now, I start that off to get us to think about, I didn't want to actually show you the symbol because then I feel like I really am in an infomercial, but I want us to think about targets, and, that, and I want us to slip into this way of thinking now and ask the question, what is the target of your life? Where is your life? What target is your life aiming for? What's the target that our church is aiming for? You see, this is a very significant issue because I'm convinced Jesus, before he left the 11 apostles behind, and he was going to then launch them out to do the ministry he'd been training them for three years to do, the all-conquering king brought them to a final post-resurrection huddle, and he clarified with them, he explained one more time, here's the target toward which you as my followers are to aim. If you've got your Bible, we're looking at Matthew chapter 28. We were going to sit here for a while and try to expand and understand these last few words that Jesus gave his disciples, Matthew 28, verses 16 and following. You may recall on several occasions that Jesus, when he got together with his apostles, they would reveal what their goal was. They revealed their target that they were aiming for. They, would, they admitted that their self-focused ambition for greatness was what they were really going after because they're pursuing positions of power and prestige. They did it again and again and again. And they wrongly assumed that by seeking the kingdom of God, they would somehow be elevated into these positions of, of privilege and empowerment. And Jesus corrected them again and again several times by emphasizing that the proper ambition for the kingdom is to find greatness in service and humility. So what do we find then in Matthew 28? What did Jesus specify should be the, gospel, the central goal and the focus target for these 11 apostles? If you follow along, I'll just read the verses again from Matthew 28, verses 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some were doubtful. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I would understand that looking at this text, it would refer to not only the 11 apostles, but by inference, it, infer, it includes every believer beyond this, the first century. And in these five verses, you'll notice that Jesus' mandate is given to his followers. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Now, last week, we noted that Jesus, as the all-conquering king, commissioned his disciples to this particular mandate with absolute authority. And so he unpacked what that meant. The fact that it meant that his commission was mandatory. It also meant that his commission, he would enable his followers to succeed because no other ruler, no other opponent could thwart his reign. But this morning our theme is number two in your outline there in your notes. We are noticing that the all-conquering king commissioned with, you could either put the word clarity, clarity, or you could use the word specificity, either one, whatever you like, those big fancy words. But he's going to clearly give them a very specific target that they're going to aim after. I want to answer two questions then this morning and several weeks here as we look at this text. The first question is, what are some essential characteristics of a true disciple of Jesus Christ? We're going to unpack that this morning and look at three of them overall, but tonight, this morning, we're just going to look at one. And what about the second question? What are several practical applications if we are to line up our lives toward the bullseye target of Jesus' great commission? We're going to think about the practical implications uh, that come out of this commission. So the first question we're going to look at, what are some essential characteristics of a true disciple? Number one. A true disciple, Jesus Christ, is called by Jesus Christ and is converted to Jesus Christ. You see, it's assumed here, and I would suggest if you read through the Gospels, it's assumed even more clearly, that no one enters this life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is ample evidence in the Scriptures that everyone is by nature at enmity against God. All of us enter the world devoting allegiance to ourselves, and ultimately we, we give allegiance to Satan. All of us are here pursuing our own way. And according to John 3, we love darkness naturally rather than loving the light. Because our deeds are evil, we don't come to Christ, who is the light, because we don't want our sin exposed. We don't want people to know what we're really, really all about. And the life we naturally pursue apart from God is empty, it is vain, it is without meaning apart from a vital communication and vital connection to Jesus Christ. And all of us then are in need of a new direction, we need a new nature, we need a new heart. And so at some point, a true disciple of Jesus Christ is going to hear the call of Christ. Jesus, in Matthew 4.19, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw Peter and Andrew, his brother, and, his, and he said to them, follow me. 
In that same passage, we notice a short time later, he saw two other brothers and he said, Jesus called them, he said, follow me. In chapter 9, we see Matthew collecting taxes. And he said to Matthew, follow me. We read in Matthew 10, verse 1, that Jesus summoned his disciples. You see, discipleship does not begin until we heed the call of Christ to follow him. True disciples are not merely religious people, but there are many religious people who rejected Jesus. If you ever want to do a fascinating study, you might want to write in your notes and look at it later. John chapter 6, verse 66. A very interesting passage in which Jesus has been speaking some things that were hard to, to, to swallow, things that were hard to understand and hard to deal with. And it says in that text that some people who called themselves disciples stopped following him at that point. There are true disciples and then there are professing disciples or people who are wannabe disciples or who think they're disciples. But true disciples are summoned by and respond to, in saving faith, the sovereign Savior of sinners. Now, I'm in their outline here. We're going to look now as to what that means in terms of Christ who is calling people to follow him. Notice that there is Jesus extends an all-inclusive general call to every person to come and follow him. That call continues to go out to every man and every woman, every boy, every girl who are alive in this massive planet of over 6 billion people. The Bible indicates that Jesus makes not only an openly call to every single person, come and follow me, but there's another more specific calling that the Bible refers to that is a specific, effective call that Jesus Christ makes. And I give you in, the, in your notes a definition of what we mean by an effective call. This is when God, through Jesus Christ, summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. God, through Christ, calls his true disciples, 1 Peter 2, out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are called ones who are the ones who are actually walking in the light. Jesus calls them into fellowship with His Son, 1 Corinthians 1.9. There are others, he, you could say specifically in terms of the effective call, there are those He calls into His kingdom and His glory. Romans, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And those who are effectively called are described as those who belong to Jesus Christ, Romans 1. And those who are called are also referred to as those who are predestined, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Now, without getting to all of the mysteries of that, all I can say is this. If you hear Jesus calling you and you're responding to him or you have responded to him in humble faith and crying out to him to rescue you, it would indicate that you are and would begin to bear witness to the fact that perhaps you're part of those who receive the effective call of Christ. And the first step, if a person is to be made a disciple, involves heeding the call of Christ to abandon that broad, crowded road that leads to destruction and enter through the narrow gate and begin following Jesus Christ on the narrow road that leads to life. Matthew chapter 7. All genuine disciples must be born again and brought from spiritual death to life in Christ. And the Gospel writer Matthew had at some point in his life, he had to leave behind his lifestyle of corruption of dishonesty and of greed 
as a tax collector. And, as we would call that, repentance, through an act of repentance, he turned away from that. And now he says, I'm following you, Lord Jesus. I'm relying completely and fully upon you alone to grant to him the eternal the gift of eternal life. True discipleship begins with an admission that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have no righteousness of your own, that only Christ by faith is able to provide you with the righteousness of life, the life of God that you desperately need. Now that's a pretty basic understanding, it seems to me, if we're going to understand what it means to make disciples, we have to have that as a framework in order to make sense of why are we commissioned to go and make disciples well it's because people need to make that first step no one's born naturally a disciple they have to uh, take the step of following christ themselves and hear his call and respond to his call well i want to think about the practical implications of this now i want to think about practical applications of what this first point entails i wish you could have been a fly on the wall last sunday evening at christianity explored as we were talking after having watched our DVD and a very helpful presentation about what it means for grace and the gift of eternal life, during this particular time of discussion, one of the persons around the table said something to the effect of, you know, I find it interesting that all of us get to point in life, whether it's in our job or in our lifestyle or in our identity and who we hang out with, and even spiritually, where we look for a place to be comfortable, and that's sort of where we live our life. And he says, I began to realize in this class that I don't feel like I'm comfortable being where I've been before. I need to leave where I've been. I need to go in another direction. I'm like, praise God. That's the Spirit of God working in that person's life. When it comes to following Christ, we must at some point let go of the place we felt comfortable most all of our life up to that point, and we must let go of our self-righteousness. We must let go of our pride. We must let go of our reliance upon good works and humble ourselves and move to an uncomfortable place where we admit that our lives and our hearts are completely known by God and we have been found wanting before the holy God of all. We must respond to the love of Christ and we must, point number one, we must turn from our sin and transfer our trust to Christ and Christ alone. We must flee to the Savior who died for us and who rose again to prove that our sin was fully paid. Again, the words of Matthew 11 are so profound as Jesus put, in these, put it this way. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. He is not talking about people who do manual labor all day. You say, how do you know that? He says they're weary, they're heavy laden. If you keep reading in the text, in the next verse, verse 29 of Matthew 11, you'll find, he says, you'll find rest for your souls, for the, for the real you that lives in the physical body. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. What's he saying? Learn of me means what? Come and follow me. You must begin that step of coming to Christ. And so I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who's been in a comfortable place in life for quite a while and you sort of have liked where you've been, but you sense that God is calling you to move in a new direction. Regardless of what other people think of you, regardless of what your fears may be or what you have to give up, regardless of what you have always thought you had done enough for God, now you begin to realize 
Christ. I desperately need Christ. Christ loves me. He gave himself for me. And there's a sense in which your heart is yearning to know Christ and to be known by him and to be found in Christ and to trust in him alone. I urge you, don't wait back, my friends. Respond to the call of Christ. Become a disciple of Christ. And start, and start following him in humble faith and repentance. There's another application, it seems to me, in this text, and that is, by implication, we would understand that there's a need, if we're going to live out this idea of making disciples, we must clearly and accurately communicate the gospel. The target for which we are to aim in order to fulfill the commission Jesus gave His church has this as its bullseye. We who are ambassadors of Christ are to compassionately and clearly entreat those who are not yet disciples of Christ to be reconciled to Him. 2 Corinthians 5. The gospel begins with God. God created all that there is. God deserves to be worshipped as the king of the universe. And the human race rebelled against God's sovereign reign and rule and consequently now lives under the curse of sin. And Jesus was sent by God to live as the perfect one who knows a perfect righteous life and to reveal the triune God to us and then to rescue his people from their sins, restore his people and restore his world from that corruption of sin. Jesus provided God's only remedy to restore and rescue sinners. As the perfect sinless Lamb of God, He laid down His life on the cross. He suffered what we deserved and then was raised to life by the Father to make clear that the price of redemption has fully been paid. And Jesus did not come to call the righteous. That is, He did not come to call people who think as they view themselves that they're right with God He came to call sinners, Mark chapter 2. And Jesus insisted that it is not the healthy who need a physician, it's those who are sick. So that's where we come in, my friend, and that's the third point of application here. It's not only we must clearly explain a God-centered view of the Gospels, we tried to do last week also in this, but thirdly, here's what I'm trying to focus on this text, particularly when he says, In verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The third point is we must go. The analogy here of a physician helping the sick people is a reminder of an important principle about the kingdom of heaven. We who are blessed to have been cured, if you will, from our terminal disease of spiritual death through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to take the gospel cure to those who are still sick rather than waiting for them to come to us to find the cure. Now, I'm just going to take a little poll here. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm just curious, how many of you raise your hand? How many of you have, in the last six months, accessed some form of medical care? You've gone to the doctor, you've gone to the hospital, whatever. Okay, a lot of us. Okay. How many of you had a doctor come to you and provide that medical care? I don't see anybody. Okay, nope. A doctor came to you. That's years ago. That's right. That's another world. That may happen somewhere else in some other culture. But in our society and culture today, those of us who need help medically, either we have to be taken there by an ambulance or we walk there and get ourselves care under a doctor or medical personnel. Now, 
most doctors today are not going to come to your house and offer you medical care. It does happen some places, but that's not the, not the general rule. I want us to have that, have that model in mind now and think about Jesus, the all-conquering king, the great physician. In love, he humbled himself and he sought out. He sought out and ministered to those in the sin-cursed people of that first century Israel. He did not wait for them to come to him. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to set up this humongous uh, spiritual care center and I'm going to wait for everybody to come and find me. And I'll be here and you just have to make your way, stand in line, we'll just deal with you. No, Jesus did not remain in Jerusalem waiting for lost people to come to him. He came to his own people. He came to his, the Jews. And he also came and sought out the outsiders and the rejected ones, the cut-off ones. And he went to those who were spiritually sick, and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He provided hope to those who were weighed down by shame and guilt, and, he, and the, those who assumed that they would never be forgiven, that they would never measure up to God's standards. Look at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now the main verb in that phrase of all those phrases of that particular verse and a half, the main verb is make disciples. The other three words that have a verbal quality to them is going, baptizing, and teaching. They're all participles. Not to get into a long grammar lesson, but that means they're modifying the main verb. So the main verb here is to make disciples, but how do we do that? Well, the first thing is we have to go. It assumes there's going involved. If disciples are to be made, Jesus' disciples must go and therefore bring the word to them, to those who are outside the kingdom, to those who are still living in darkness. Now, unfortunately, this has been a very difficult lesson for the church to learn. It has been in history. It is today. It probably will be uh, true tomorrow and in the future. There was a time in church history over 200 years ago when a group of Christians in England assumed that when they read this passage of Scripture, that the command here to make disciples of all nations, they thought and assumed that that's an obligation that was only true for the first century apostles. And so the going and making disciples was only really, it's really limited to those 11 people who were standing there on that occasion. And they assumed that God would somehow use supernatural means for the evangelization and for the bringing of the gospel to the very unreached tribes and nations of the world. But something happened about that time when a humble shoemaker began to carefully study the scriptures, and he took his thoughts in reading the scriptures, and he wrote down an 87-page little booklet about challenging this assumption that was widely held in his day. And I've listed in your notes there that this William Carey put together this little booklet, and I've even shortened the name of it from what you see right there in your notes. It was actually much longer. As you know, the titles of publications used to be about a whole page long, explaining what the content of the book was about. But in this little booklet, William Carey summarized numerous reasons why God's people are to go and make disciples. And so Carey compiled information that of things that were recently now just becoming uh, known and written in his day from the travels of Captain Cook, who had voyages overall on the other side of the world. 
And he set forth the responsibility that believers have to venture forth and to proclaim to unreached people groups all over the world the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ and of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And although the treatise was not initially popular, the writings of Carey became of great interest and gained interest because he himself volunteered as the first missionary of the Baptist Missionary Society that was newly formed. And what did Carey do? He invested four decades of his life to going to India, where he was involved in cross-cultural ministry, and he translated the entire Bible before the days of computers, the entire Bible he translated in six languages, and additionally, he put the New Testament or portions of the New Testament in 30 additional languages. It's an incredible amount of investment of his mental abilities and his tediousness with words and translating of the Bible into these other languages. Now, his translations were not the best of translations ever done. They were inaccurate in places, and yes, we know it was a great first effort. But Carey is known today as the father of modern missions because he helped get the church in these last couple of centuries to become more aware of the great obligation and privilege and ministry to which God has called his church followers, and that is to make disciples of all nations to go. If you look at Mark chapter 16, the last uh, commission that Jesus recorded there, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Luke chapter 24, this is... The, Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead in the third day and that the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to whom? To all the world. You can't argue with the emphasis that certainly Carey picked up in the scriptures. Now, Jesus made it clear his followers were not to huddle up in Jerusalem and wait for inquirers to come to them. They were to wait a while. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit. But then he says to them in Acts 1.8, maybe you should turn your Bible, just turn quickly there to look at Acts 1.8. Again, one of the last comments that Jesus made to the eleven, he made these when he was in Jerusalem, this is a separate occasion, right before he ascended back to heaven. Acts 1.8, Jesus said this, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We'll never do what God wants us to do unless we have power from the Holy Spirit. He said, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, which is where they were at the time, and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, if you know your geography, biblical geography, this statement in Acts 1.8 served as a target. It is a concentric, expanding number of circles going from a center point to even further and further out. If you notice, your, it starts with Jerusalem as the bullseye center. That's where things started. That's where the original believers were gathered. That's where the Holy Spirit came upon them. And it's from that ministry center that the word went out, and then it went to Judea, which was the immediate surrounding area. Again, made up of people who spoke the same language and people who shared the same culture. But then he says, 
the, the gospel ministry of God's people and the making of disciples, they're to go out from there. It's to radiate from the center. And so he mentioned Samaria. Samaria. You say, what's the big deal? Samaria. It's another city beyond Jerusalem. No, it's another whole culture. A whole other type of people who don't get along with people who live in Jerusalem. They don't think the same way as people in Jerusalem. They don't worship the same way as people in Jerusalem. There's a lot of racial animosity between those two groups. And Jesus is saying what? You've got to go and move out into areas that's going to be uncomfortable, areas where people are much different than you, but you need to keep moving out with the gospel. You need to face hurdles like racism and cultural tensions. And then he says not only Samaria, but the outermost, part, the outermost parts of the world. The outermost circle of this radiating target, if you will, includes the rest of the inhabited world, which we know today is over 6 billion people, which speak over 6,000 languages, we, at least we know of, that are spoken. But the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples. How? By following Christ's example. By going to people. By going to those who are nearby, those who live in our vicinity right here, those who speak our culture and that we have a lot in common with, who share our culture, and we go to them. And I would suggest to you that that's part of what it means to be a Christ follower. In order to hit the commissional target that Jesus established for this church, every believer is called to join God in His mission to do incarnational ministry. That is, we go and we live among people. We go and we live out the life of Christ before people. We go and demonstrate truth in how we live our life, truth that we receive from God. We live out that truth among them. Therefore, we go and we build bridges. We enter the world of other people. We introduce them to Jesus Christ. And by living holy and devoted lives of love and service, we earn the right to speak of Christ, who and then in turn, Christ calls them to follow Him as they read the words of Christ, as they deal with Christ, as He's revealed in the Gospels. That's what we're doing every Sunday night, my friend, in, in Christianity Explored. I wish you could all be there and hear what's going on. It is so exciting. But it doesn't matter where you take place. It can take place over the fence in your backyard. It can take place as you talk to people at work, as you live out the life of Christ before whoever it is you're living a life of Christ, we are going and we're living out and letting the light of Christ be shown to those who live in darkness. And we encourage people to think of Christ, explore who Christ is, look at Him, examine His life, look at His claims, look at the glories of who He is. And Rather than remaining secluded from those who are lost, Jesus summons His followers to be on mission. And that's what we're summoned to, my friend. Every day we're summoned to mission. Going, serving, helping, engaging, loving, proclaiming, and working to bring about the kingdom. The kingdom in making the impact of what it means to be a follower of Christ. At some point, you have to at least hear the call of Christ. You respond to that call. And then once you've responded to it, my friend, we're to continually to be going making known the glories of what God in Christ has done for us. I'm amazed as I think about even today how the gospel changes people in the direction of their lives into going where they never thought they'd ever go. Two quick illustrations and I'm done. Today's news has the 
announcement of the end of the race of Chuck Colson on this earth. Chuck Colson, as many of you know, was a lawyer during the Nixon years. He was known as the hatchet man. He would do whatever was asked of him and even came up with some suggestions on breaking the laws in order to get President Nixon reelected. He ended up pleading guilty to obstruction of justice. He went to prison for about nine months on a one-year sentence. And while in that prison, having just prior to that been introduced to Jesus Christ in a life-transforming way, he began to see the people around him completely differently than he had ever would have seen them otherwise. His life was so radically changed by the gospel that having been in prison, he didn't just get out of prison and go on with his life pursuing things that made him comfortable. He invested his life and began a ministry called Prison uh, Fellowship in which he has now encouraged people to go into prisons and minister to those in broken lives who need the gospel of Jesus Christ to rebuild those broken lives. And that's the only hope of seeing a life rebuilt, by the way. And he's ministering to their families, ministering to those uh, prisoners, ministering to the children of those prisoners in amazingly international ministry. Hundreds and thousands of people who are involved in seeing a burden for people behind bars whose lives are broken, shattered, and hopelessly in despair apart from the gospel that gives them hope and light. His life went in what? He went and went to people in need. Eighty years of age. He's in glory now. Another example. Michael and Amber Schwamm. A couple came here in December, explained their story. Michael grew up right here sitting in these pews, lived in California for a number of years, uh, met his wife, and both felt a great desire to say, I want to be part of what God is doing to bring good news to people who don't have any understanding of who Jesus is. What are they doing right now? They are living in the country in Southeast Asia. I won't even use the country just for their own protection. They're ministering among a people who, whose language they don't speak, whose culture is totally different, who are all sorts, they just celebrate New Year's. That's totally different. But why are they there? Because of the passion they have to make, as to make disciples so that Christ's kingdom will ever expand. And we have the privilege of partnering with them, being a part of what they're doing, praying for them, reading their emails. It is, I tell you, it is amazing to see what goes on as God's people get on mission and get on target to make disciples. Let's pray. Lord, many of us can become seduced into thinking that the way to really live life is to build our own kingdom. To find our comfortable place and make it as comfortable as we possibly can and to live in that comfort as long as we can. But Lord, I thank you that when the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts, when he does his convicting work, and when we become aware of who we really are and who you really are, and hear the call of Christ to come and follow Him. Lord, I thank You that the Holy Spirit can and does change people's hearts and does bring them to the point of responding in faith to Christ in full surrender and repentance. And I thank You, Lord, that You did that in my life at one point. And I thank You for how I've seen You do that in many other lives over the years. Even most recently, we we're referring there to Chuck Colson, Lord. What a change in his direction of life we've seen. 
And Lord, I just pray for anyone who's here this morning. They've never really taken that step, whether they are a young boy or a young girl, a young adult, a teenager, a middle-aged or even older adult. Lord, I pray that they would, even this day, sense that the, that the Spirit of God through, is encouraging them to respond to Jesus' call. Come, follow me. Find rest for their souls. Lord, I pray that they would take the yoke of Christ upon them and learn of him. He is meek and gentle. And I pray, Father, for those of us who have responded in that way, we've come to Christ as disciples, I pray that you would now help us, Lord, see us ourselves as people who are on mission. That we are on mission to live the life of Christ, to bring the grace and truth and love of Christ and how we live our lives to others and introduce people to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for many of us who week by week are interacting with people around us who may not seem very interested, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to see them with your eyes and that we would continually long to see your kingdom come and the ever-increasing expansion of your kingdom so that more and more people will follow you and glorify you and serve you. So Father, help us, we pray, to be on target for you this week. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.